Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. My name is Ryan Howard. I am King of the Boneheads, your dungeon master and host for the evening. And tonight, we are going to try again to discuss something that I tried to discuss a while back. Um, The stream where I actually talked about this, though... There was some problems with the audio because I had two different capture devices, so that video has been lost to time. It was never released as an audio uh, podcast, so tonight we are going to once again be talking about the 007 role-playing game, uh, James Bond 007 role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service, and... We'll also be talking about the retro clone that was released back in 2014, Classified. So, uh, I will try to uh, do my best to make sure that the audio people are not left out here, but anyone listening on audio, I will tell you, uh, I'll be showing a lot of both this book and the original James Bond book. So, uh, if you want to see some of the visuals from both books, uh, definitely check out the video. Uh, The video will be on YouTube, and uh, for any of you who are joining me live this evening as I am uh, doing this stream, thank you and uh, welcome. Uh, To kick things off, uh, talk a little bit about what I am drinking this evening, because I am incredibly happy to say I finally got my hands on some, uh, some Buffalo Trace. Oddly enough, it's kind of hard to find, despite my proximity to Kentucky. Um, But the uh, liquor store nearby, Luther's Liquors in Brentwood, is uh, fantastic. It is a great place. I love them. They have a great selection. So I'm drinking some Buffalo Trace that I got from Luther's Liquors on Sunday. Delicious. So... Let's talk a little bit about the James Bond role-playing game. Before we actually take a look at the rule set, uh, just a little bit of background on uh, myself as a James Bond fan, and then we'll dig into a little bit of the background of the role-playing game. And just so you guys know, tonight's going to be a lot more about discussing the actual RPG and mechanics if you are interested in the uh, the kind of cultural aspects around why this RPG was significant at the time that it came out, you know, how it relates to the Bond franchise as a whole, I'm actually going to be doing that uh, podcast in September with the guys on James Bond Radio. 
before they went on their summer break, we tried to put together a session where I ran the James Bond RPG for them. Uh, however, that episode is lost to time. There were uh, a lot of technical issues with it, and on top of the technical issues, none of them had played RPGs before, none of them had dice, and I had never run the game before, so it was basically me telling them a story and rolling dice while they somewhat reacted to it. Didn't exactly make for great listening. It was fun at the time. I think they enjoyed it. They definitely got a feel for what RPGs are like, uh, but that episode, like I said, has been lost to time just because it wouldn't have made for good listening or viewing. But uh, Tom has very graciously told me that he will invite me back on in September when the summer break is over, and we'll be talking a lot about kind of the uh, the significance of the James Bond RPG as it relates to Bond licensed media. So, my background as a Bond fan. Um, it's not something that I've discussed a lot on the show, but I am in fact a huge Huge, huge James Bond fan. I have been a James Bond fan for a long, long time. I remember, you know, kind of my first exposure to the the James Bond franchise was kind of odd, actually. It, I, it wasn't me encountering the character or seeing one of the movies on TV. It was me getting ready for Easter Sunday, putting on my little child suit, which I'm sure... My mother has pictures of somewhere, uh, just for for Elfie's sake, because I know she's going to now request to see these pictures. And if my mom can send me them, I will put them up on my Instagram, uh, which you can follow at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And yes, uh, Elfie, be sure to ask for them. So. Anyway, I was getting ready for Easter Sunday. I was probably six or seven years old. And, you know, my dad sees me in the suit and he goes, You look cool, buddy. You look like James Bond. And I, being six years old, go, Who's James Bond? And so my dad goes, Well, James Bond's a secret agent. And he begins to tell me a little bit about James Bond. And then, you know, we, we go on the, it's like, the James Bond website at the time, and, you know, he's showing me, you know, pictures of this is what James Bond looks like, and, you know, he has these villains, there's this guy, Oddjob, who has this hat that he throws, and it cuts people's heads off, and I was like, oh, that's cool! And he's like, and then there's this guy, Jaws, who has these sharp teeth, and he, you know, bites people, and I was like, oh, that's cool, too! Can I see these movies? And I'm being, you know, like, six or seven years old, my dad's like, absolutely not, but... A couple years later, you know, as I got a little bit older, a little bit able to, uh, or better able to handle some of the uh, more mature elements of, of James Bond movies, I was probably about eight, maybe nine years old when I saw my first Bond movie, uh, but they were showing a bunch of Bond movies on TV, and so my dad and I sat down and we watched Goldfinger on AMC. And from there, I was hooked. I was into James Bond. It was only a matter of time. Yes, Elfie, you never forget your first Bond. But it was only a matter of time for me, you know, kind of being the uh, the young 
video game loving child that I was at the time. I had an N64. It was only a matter of time before I got my hands on a copy of GoldenEye 64, which is where a lot of Bond fans around my age, you know, kind of of my generation got their first exposure to Bond. Of course, all odd job or no odd job. All odd job, golden gun. Yeah, you, you guys know, you know the drill. Anyway, you know, from there, I, you know, started watching the movies. Uh, my, my Bond fandom kind of lapsed in between the release of uh, Casino Royale and right around the time I was in ninth or 10th grade because uh, in my quest to watch more and more James Bond movies, you know, we moved beyond the Bond movies that my dad fondly remembered from his youth, you know, the, the Sean Connery and the Roger Moore movies, and we got into the Pierce Brosnan movies, and I had DVR'd Goldeneye because, you know, I had the game. So, you know, let's watch Goldeneye. And so I watched Goldeneye by myself. I was uh, 12, I think. And then, you know, I'm watching it with my parents, and it was one of those moments where your parents forgot some of the racier elements of Goldeneye or, or racier elements of a movie that, you know, they were familiar with and, you know, let you watch as a kid but forgot about, you know, some of the awkward scenes. And for those of you who don't know, Goldeneye features a character who, one, is named Zinya Anatop, and two, she kills people by strangling them with her thighs. She is also aroused, shall we say, by the sight of violence. And so there were not one, not two, but several awkward sequences featuring Xenia on top that my parents did not really know about because they were busy, you know, carrying and birthing me when that movie was in theaters and didn't get to see it. So they, uh, they didn't know about that stuff, and when they figured out that 12-year-old Ryan was watching a movie that had a character named Xenia on a top in it, who killed people with her thighs, they told me I was not allowed to watch any James Bond movie that did not have either Roger Moore or Sean Connery in them. Whether or not this is a good decision, I will leave up to you guys. Having seen every single James Bond movie multiple times now, I can say there are plenty of racy moments in both Moore and Connery movies. Uh, there are plenty of non-racy moments in uh, uh, Brosnan films. I definitely have to question kind of the blanket ban on any James Bond movie made after 1985. Um uh, Certainly there are exceptions to be made in uh, Timothy Dalton's tenure and uh, some of the Pierce Brosnan movies, although I will say they were protecting me from Die Another Day. Uh, glad I missed out on that one until I eventually watched it. But that also precluded me from going to the theaters to see the Daniel Craig movies as uh, both Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace were coming out. So, I did not get to catch up on Daniel Craig's tenure as James Bond until a couple years later. I was about 13, 14 years old, and I got to watch Casino and Quantum for the first time. 
didn't really enjoy Quantum all that much first time I watched it, but, you know, that's how a lot of people reacted to Quantum of Solace. It's really best enjoyed as a companion to Casino Royale. Um, and it's one that I have not seen in a long time. It's not one that I go back to a lot. So I am interested to see how I react to it when uh, my friends and I, uh, which is uh, Spoonie Sage and, and Nim as well as Elfie, we're all watching my uh, 007 favorite Bond movies and the Daniel Craig movies, which, you know, if we cut out uh, other Bond movies and said that the uh, the Daniel Craig movies had to count as part of my 007, we'd really only get to watch uh, probably four non-Craig movies. So there's that. Anyway, at this time, you know, I'm 14, 15 years old, I'm in high school, uh, Netflix has all of the James Bond movies, so I decide, you know what, I'm old enough now, these movies are PG-13, I'm gonna watch every single James Bond movie, and I did. I watched every James Bond movie that was available at that time, and then my dad and I went to see Skyfall in the movie theaters... And from there, Bond fan. Just immediately, I was back in it. I was in it so, so deep that, you know, I kept going back to those Bond movies. I watched all the Bond movies again. I bought the DVD collection that has every single Bond movie, and I've kept up with physical releases of James Bond movies, which in 2020 is a weird thing for some people to say, but Bond fans are a unique breed. This uh, this Bond fandom actually did lead me to the world of podcasting, because my first podcast was, in fact, James Bond Radio. It was the first podcast I ever listened to, and uh, Tom Sears actually gave me some advice about how to do video conferencing with someone who's not near you and how to record that to do a podcast. That's what led me and my, uh, my former co-host on Digital Men Audio, Brent Sello, to begin Digital Men and start talking about Rush. And from there, you can draw a straight line to me doing this show and my obsession with role-playing games, which brings us to the topic of today's episode, that of course being 007 role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, a little bit of background on the game itself. Uh, This game was originally released in 1983, Uh, This was part of a big marketing push to really turn the Eon James Bond movies into a mega franchise following kind of Return of the Jedi, where Star Wars had become basically this media empire. The idea of the mega franchise was really born in the early 1980s, but I'm going to save a lot of that conversation for my episode of James Bond Radio. So, anyway... With that in mind, uh, this game company called uh, Victory Games puts out, with the blessing of Eon and the Fleming Estate, the James Bond role-playing game. And at this time, licensed role-playing games were 
kind of a thing. This one actually read, not re, predates the uh, West End game Star Wars game by, I think, two years. So James Bond was kind of uh, early to the party. And as it goes, this game was extremely popular in its time. It uh, it beat out... There was another spy game that I believe TSR put out. I don't remember what's... Oh, Top Secret. That's what it was. Top Secret was initially the... Uh, that was the spy game. You know, if you didn't want to play Dungeons & Dragons, you wanted to play something with a bit more of a modern espionage flavor to it, you played Top Secret. Until 83, when uh, Victory Games put out the James Bond role-playing game, and it became the the popular spy game of the 80s until um, <clears throat> Victory Games lost the license in 1987. And uh, the game was no longer published, no longer supported at that point. And then comes the 90s, Spycraft takes its place, and... Here we are. <clears throat> so there was a lot of material put out for this game. In 1983, you, of course, have the core rulebook. And then you also have uh, a book that came out in uh, October of 1980. No, not October of 1983 was when it was released. Uh, following that in uh, the, the same month, October of 1983... You have the Q manual, which is your splat book with all the equipment. Game Master Pack comes out that same month. And then For Your Information, which is an expansion of the rules, also came out in, in late 1983. It seems a little bit weird for there to be a revised rule book as early as late 83. Usually it takes a year, year and a half, maybe two years for a revised rulebook to come out, but, you know, that's what we have. And then there's one more expansion put out called Thrilling Locations in 1985, which discusses all the different places you can have uh, Bondian adventures. Give me one second. I'm going to close the door real quick. Sorry about that. I could hear an echo, so I'm sure that you guys could probably hear it as well. Anyway, uh, beyond the supplements, that was not the only material released for this book. There are, of course, adventure modules, uh, which were released all the way up through 1987 when the game was uh, done publishing. And they are all adaptations of different James Bond movies, and some of them adaptations of the novels. Uh, the first one released was Goldfinger. Octopussy followed uh, that same month. Octopussy obviously being the uh, the Bond movie that came out in the summer of 83. It was the freshest Bond movie at the time, so it makes sense that that was the adventure that came out kind of alongside the, uh, the release of the game. Dr. No's Island is in the back of the book, uh, the core book as a mini-adventure to get you started. 
Dr. No received a full-on adaptation in 84, followed by You Only Live Twice, Live and Let Die. And then, oddly enough, they started doing sequels, like direct sequels, to the movies and adventures. So in 85, you have the release of Goldfinger 2, The Man with the Midas Touch, which is a direct sequel to the Goldfinger adventure. I don't know how... Because at the end of the Goldfinger movie, spoiler alert for a 50-plus-year-old movie, Goldfinger is sucked out of an airplane. He's real dead. So is Oddjob. So both of the main villains are dead. I don't know how you circle back around to Goldfinger. But they did it. I don't have a copy of that adventure, so I don't know. And then from there you get the the release of Man with the Golden Gun, one of my uh, ironic favorite Bond movies, Man with the Golden Gun. It's not a great movie, but I think it's fun. Then you have A View to a Kill, which again, 1985, that's the Bond movie that comes out, so that makes sense. You Only Live Twice 2. This one actually was worked on by Raymond Benson, who, those of you who are Bond fans know, he was an expansion novel author. So, uh, yeah, from there, For Your Eyes Only in 1986, again, that was a recent movie, that was 81 when that movie came out, so that makes sense. Um, and then, you know, there's there's kind of a big break in releases at that point. Well, not a big break, but a the, the usual every other year gap at that time. And then in 87, uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service comes out. It's based on both the book and the movie. Uh, it's four linked adventures. Uh, all of them solo, not necessarily built around having a, uh, a team with you, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and I imagine that they were working on a Living Daylights module when the licensing fell apart, uh, but that has not been released because, you know, Living Daylights, again, came out in 1987. And then uh, one other note to make here in night, sorry, not 19, in 2003, Victory Games put out a playtest only module based on From Russia With Love. And it seems that Victory Games, which at the time was owned by Wizards of the Coast and, you know, still is, uh, they were kind of negotiating around, you know, getting the rights back, re-releasing. Bond was once again a hot commodity, although uh, Die Another Day was just about, well, no, no, Die Another Day had already bombed at that point. Um, So that's probably why the licensing negotiation fell through. But uh, any attempt at, like, a second edition or a second licensed James Bond RPG fell through. Uh, However, you can find the playtest version of the From From Russia With Love uh, adventure online, I suppose, probably. You can find everything else from this book online, so I imagine that's available, too. And those were all the major releases for the game. Uh, So without further ado, let's dig into the actual game itself. Go ahead and share my screen with you guys here. 
so as you can see here, we have the uh, front cover. Let me go ahead and navigate over here so I can show you guys. Role playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service. The title of this game is very clunky. Um, but you know what? It's the James Bond RPG. Everyone would just say we're playing James Bond tonight. So who cares? And from there, you see uh, Gerard Christopher Klug was the main uh, game designer and, and project coordinator. And uh, Michael E. Moore was the rules editor. The illustrations, which I really want to shout out here, are fantastic. They were done by a guy named James Talbot, as you can see from my cursor hovering around his name there. And yeah, I mean, these these images are really good illustrations. Uh, so, you know, we've got our table of contents here and then we get into the player section. This is adapted from uh, For Your Eyes Only, him hitting the, uh, the guy on the motorcycle with the skis. Some nice kind of old school RPG art. And I really love this uh, this letterhead here that kind of opens each chapter of the gun barrel. Nice iconic Bond image. And this introduction basically serves as an intro to what a role-playing game is, which strikes me as kind of odd because my assumption kind of going into games like this is that you are initiated into RPGs through the portal known as Dungeons and Dragons. That is, you know, the blue jeans of RPGs. It's the peanut butter and jelly of RPGs. When it comes to, you know, walking up to a random person on the street and saying, hey, can you name a tabletop role-playing game? If they can, it's probably going to be Dungeons & Dragons. So the idea that this would be the first RPG that someone picks up is an interesting one, but it's also attached to a major franchise like 007, so it makes sense that, you know, you have a Bond fan who picks up this book doesn't really know what an RPG is and would then say, you know, what what is an RPG and would need some kind of explanation. And then there's a note for experienced players kind of explaining that this is going to be a different kind of game because it really is a different game, very different from what D&D was at this time and different from a lot of other systems that were around in the 80s. This game has kind of a unique feature in that it's largely based around percentile dice, but also based around a multiplication table, which I will show you in a little bit. So yeah, like I said, it's based around uh, percentile, which is 2d10, for those of you not familiar with that particular system. And... Basically, the idea is that you need to meet a certain uh, number, which is determined by your primary chance and the ease factor. I'll get into both of those in just a little bit. Uh, but basically, you have a number that's over 100 that you need to meet by rolling your D100 and adding in uh, your ability modifiers. So in that way, it's very similar to other RPGs, 
but the terms and the math and all of that is, you know, different. Specifically tailored for this game. So, like I said, you have the success chance, which is what you're trying to meet. It's the primary chance and the ease factor um, you know, put together. The primary chance comes from your attributes and your abilities added together. So basically your strength, dexterity, constitution, they call them different things in this game, but that determines your skills, which is, you know, your fire combat, your shooting, your driving, your hand-to-hand combat. That determines a primary chance, which is multiplied by the ease factor. And the ease factor is just, you know, how difficult is this task? It's a number from one half to ten. Ten being as easy as possible. You are walking in the park on a sunny day where you can see everything around you. Where one half is you are surrounded by agents with fully automatic weapons Uh, You're tied to a chair, and you're blindfolded, and somehow you have to get out of there. So, that multiplication, based on the skill that you were using, gives you the primary chance, which you then have to roll your d100 to meet. Now, that's kind of the, uh, the basic premise of the game, and I'll show you some of those tables here in just a little bit. Um, there's also quality ratings, which those of you who are familiar with, uh, you know, engines like powered by the apocalypse, you're probably familiar with something like this, where there's a chance to succeed with consequences or succeed outright or fail, which, you know, a failure in this, in this game is a failure. Uh, there's no like failure and then double failure where you are harmed in some way but it's you know you fail you succeed with major consequences succeed with minor consequences and then succeed outright and from that uh basically that's the axis around which this game revolves is that equation there so here we have the quality results table which shows you kind of you know what your success chance is versus, you know, beating the uh, the success chance by four is how you get... Actually, let me back that up. Four is the acceptable rating. So this is the minimum that you can get to succeed on a check. Excellent is a one. This is the, you know, like top that you can roll. A 100... Or sorry, a 1, not a 100. A 100 is always a failure. So if it shows a 10 and a 0 on your percentile dice, that's a failure. But a 1, you know, a 0, or uh, sorry, two zeros and a 1, that is an automatic success. That's your crit in this case. And that's always going to be an excellent, as you can see here, uh, result. And so here you have something that's interesting. On this side of the, uh, on the left side of the page here, what we have is a write-up of an event that happens in the movie Goldfinger where James Bond is trying to escape from 
Auric Goldfinger's, uh, you know, processing plant where he finds out about Operation Grand Slam. And on the right side of the page, you've got this write-up of what the table talk would look like for this particular adventure. And so for those of you who've never played an RPG before, this is kind of a, uh, a look into what happens at the table. And unlike the WWE Know Your Role write-up, this one seems to be written by people who actually somewhat know what happens at the table, although there's a little bit of weirdness in that one of the character, instead of, you know, using an expletive like would normally happen at an RPG table, they say nuts. Not, not damn, not anything more severe, nuts. I don't even think 10-year-olds say nuts. They probably say, like, crap or something like that, but not nuts. So there's going to be a lot of scrolling here as we get through this entire thing. And then we get into some uh, some example characters here. Of course, you know, you've got your, your image of James Bond here, uh, kind of an amalgam Bond. He doesn't necessarily look like any of the actors who at this point had played Bond, uh, but, you know an amalgam of what James Bond is described as looking like in the novels. And, of course, you've got a stat block here. He's, uh, you know, a double O, which is the highest rank a character can be. And then you have Anya Masova from The Spy Who Loved Me right next to him. So you've got their stat blocks. And then from there, you know, Felix Leiter, Holly Goodhead, Mary Goodnight, Chong Su Hip, or Chong Sung Hip. And then you get into character creation. Character creation in this game is interesting, especially when you consider the time that it was created, because everything is point by. Uh, There's no random rolling, which I find fascinating as someone who's heard multiple old school grognards talk about 3D6 in order over and over like it was the only thing that anyone ever did until like 2015. This game is built entirely around uh, point buy, though. So any of you rolling purists, unfortunately, not an option in this game. You have to point buy. There's no options for rolling your stats. And that's because there's a lot of risk and reward in building out your character uh, point buy style. Because not only are you buying your characteristics, your strength, dexterity, willpower, perception, intelligence, uh, you're also buying out your physical aspects. So your height, your weight, your appearance are you know, things that you have to invest points in because they have a mechanical impact on the gameplay. In this game, there is a feature called fame points. And the more striking your appearance... The more memorable you are to look at, the more fame points you get, and the easier it is for enemy agents to recognize you. So instead of making, you know, the handsomest, tallest uh, character, your uh, your munchkins, your min-maxers are going to be making characters who are like, I don't know, for guys, 5'10", 5'11", you know, right around uh, 180 to 194 pounds, very average height, average build, and average looking. 
very plain looking. So you're going to have some some very, like, uh, boring-looking spies running around because people you don't recognize make the best spies. Which I find extremely interesting that the game kind of factors that in. Because usually, you know, you want your hero character to be as handsome as possible. But this game points out that being as handsome as possible is a detriment. In fact... Being very, very small or very, very large, while it does affect your uh, ability as far as strength and speed goes, it will make you stand out in a crowd more. So, that's your your point-by system. It's kind of complicated, I built out multiple characters for that uh, James Bond radio game, and it's it's actually a bit of a process to, you know, put your characters together. It's it's kind of difficult. You might have to do it multiple times because there's a lot of numbers to keep track of. And not only do you have to keep track of, you know, that basic stuff, you also have to buy your skills. You have to figure out what your character's background is. And you have to, you know, modify or uh, put stats together to, uh, you know, get different aspects like your speed, your carrying capacity, your stamina, that kind of stuff. So the character creation process is a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a process. It's it's kind of difficult. It's one of the weaknesses of this game, how complicated character creation can be. It's something that I feel like uh, Classified here, which I'll hold up to the camera again. I feel like Classified really streamlines the character creation process. Part of the weaknesses here that the Bond book has is the way it's laid out. There's a lot of stuff that's uh, segmented in weird ways so that you can't necessarily see, you know, what comes next. There's a lot of stuff where you have to jump around between pages to find, okay, I need my skills now. What are those? What do they look like? How do they apply to me? And you have to jump around between chapters, whereas Classified has it laid out a lot better. And, of course, there are weaknesses to choose from, which do have a mechanical impact. Uh, They will distract you or cause you to be afraid. But they also give you additional generation points. And then fields of experience are just, you know, what you did before you were an agent. There's a couple of interesting ones, you know, freelance operative, basically a private detective or a uh, a soldier of fortune, military, military intelligence. You know, that's what James Bond was. He was Navy intelligence. Police, scientist, thief. Uh, journalist. And then, you know, there are other fields of experience which have to do with, you know, things that your character would know about just, you know, because of hobbies. Things like golf, tennis, water skiing, uh, chess, wargaming. Just a little bit of a, uh, just kind of an additional factor, an additional field of experience that your character can call upon. Uh, you know, military science, 
political science. It doesn't just have to be like a hobby. It can also be a, uh, you know, a field that they studied in college or something like that. It's just a little bit of, you know, fleshing out your character's background. Then you get into skills here. There's a nice picture of Bond with his golf clubs leaning up against the DB5. And then uh, here you've got your skill formulas, which are determined, you know, basically it's uh, characteristics that determine your skill level. Some of them use multiple skills. Some of them just use one. And your uh, skill... Your skill level cannot be any more than two levels higher than what you have in a given characteristic. So, for example, uh, I believe you top out at 15 is the highest you can get in any given uh, skill, which I believe is also the highest you can get in any given characteristic. Uh, So if you've only got a 10 in intelligence... Uh, you can only have up to a 12 in interrogation. <clears throat> because, I mean, just from a gameplay perspective, it only makes sense that you are not going to be able to exceed your natural characteristic, your natural ability in a given field, at least to a certain extent. And then this talks about, you know, using skills in games, characteristics. And then the last thing we have here. Oh, so sorry. Before we get to that, you've got a nice, you know, write up of what each skill does. Nice picture from Goldfinger of Bond uh, planting the bomb. Scroll through all of this. Gambling is a skill that you can get. There's a, an extensive list of uh, gambling things that you can do here. Scroll all the way down. Here's a nice picture of, I think, Triple uh, X and, yeah, Massiva fighting uh, Sandor. Looks that way, at least. And from there, you get into abilities. Abilities are skills that have an automatic success chance of 20. Or an automatic uh, primary, yeah, success chance of 20. So these are things that you're very, very skilled in. Which includes connoisseur, first aid and photography for every agent. And then classified actually lets you pick a fourth. Um... And classified is sure to mention that, you know, you know, you can do this and initially you'll be able to have a 20 in this. But, you know, you can't get any better than a 20 if you take a skill as one of your attributes or as one of your abilities, rather. You can't exceed 20. Uh, So I think that's an interesting and a good addition from classified. Um We'll get into a few of those as as we go through. And from here we get into combat. The uh, the bread and butter of your game. Something that's interesting here, there's GM notes off to the side, as those of you who are watching can see. And these GM notes kind of detail uh, 
you know, basically different things that the GM should know. One of them uh, in, in the combat section that it details is that the playtesters who, you know, playtested this game found that hand-to-hand combat is a lot less lethal than fire combat. And you basically want to avoid getting in fire combat as much as possible, at least in this game. It's a little bit less lethal in Classified. Um, but Classified's designed to kind of be adapted to different levels. Uh, this game basically makes it clear that, you know, if you're in a firefight, you better win or you're dead. And that has to do a lot with the, uh, you know, the damage that you can do to someone. And so the way that this works, uh, basically, whoever has the highest speed gets to go first. At least in uh, combat terms. Their character acts first. If you have a tie, you have to roll off using a d6, adding your speed. And once you have your order determined, everyone has to then declare their action. This is where things get interesting. uh, Because you declare your actions in reverse order from the way that you're going. So, the character who goes last declares first. What this does, what the advantage that it gives you for going first, is you get to hear what everyone else is doing. So basically, it's like your character is doing the Mind Palace thing from Sherlock Holmes. Where you can, you know, you see what everyone's about to do and plan accordingly. And so it allows you to be very, very effective. The earlier you go in combat, the more you're able to judge what everyone else is getting ready to do. And then build your actions around that. When you go, or when you declare first and go last, you're basically stuck with, you know, whatever ends up happening. And a lot of times you might not even get to do the action that you declared because of the circumstances of combat. That comes into play with something that's called the draw, which let me scroll down to where the draw is right here. Speed and the draw. So what this game allows you to do is basically take a reaction if someone is going to attack you and you haven't attacked yet. Every weapon has a draw modifier. Uh, Pistols have a positive draw modifier where it adds to your draw roll. Long guns have a negative draw effect where it takes away from your speed roll. Basically what happens if an NPC is going to shoot at you before you take your turn, before you've done anything, you get the chance to make a speed roll and steal the initiative to use a a Warhammer 40k term. And basically at that point, you're able to see, hey, this guy's leveling his rifle at me, I better pull my PPK out and shoot him first. And so it gives you a way, it's basically so that the person who goes last isn't completely blindsided by what's going on. So if you end up rolling super crappy on your initiative, uh, and and basically everyone's going to be able to get shots in on you, and you're not going to be able to act because you're filled with bullet holes, you know, the first person who goes up against you, you'll be able to say, okay, I'm going to draw my gun and shoot him. And if you succeed on that speed roll, then you might be able to completely thwart what that first person was going to do to you. 
And it's, you know, it's a cool Bondian moment of, you know, I can draw my gun faster than this guy can act. You know, it's the, it's the perception of a threat reaching in your coat pocket and pulling out your PPK. Or it's the, you know, adjustment to what you see around you, uh, which you see a lot in, in Bond movies. Bond being sometimes not the best fighter in the world, but definitely one of the most cunning. You know, able to take in all these different, you know, perspectives around him and, you know, adapt to what's going on. And so from here, you've got the wound level chart. Um, there's multiple different wound levels that can be dealt to an opponent. Just want to point this out. This guy looks a lot like Sean Connery. Uh, some of these drawings, actually, no, he looks more like Roger Moore now that I see it. Um, most of these drawings are of like a composite bond or an amalgam bond. Uh, but some of them do definitely look a lot like different bond actors. This one looks like Roger Moore. So here you have the wound level chart, which is based on the quality of your hit. So you roll your D100 and, you know, quality rating four. You know, you're, you're dealing minimal damage. Quality rating one, you're dealing heavy damage. And the, uh, the level of damage that you're dealing is also determined by the damage class of the weapon or attack you're using. Your physical damage class, I don't believe, can exceed like a D naturally. But it basically, uh, you know, this is, this is how heavy your, your wounds can be, you know, with a given weapon. So your handguns are somewhere in this range, the D, E, F, G range. <clears throat> and so, you know, at best, you're able to incapacitate someone... Uh, which is effectively, you know, effectively killing them. Not literally killing them. If you hang around long enough, they'll be able to get back up, typically around an hour, but you're taking someone out of the fight. Up through the, uh, you know, G-H-I-J range, you're looking at assault rifles, sniper rifles, shotguns, and then K and L, you're looking at explosives. And so the wound levels that you can deal based on what you've got are stun, which is a willpower roll to keep moving. Uh, basically, you know, in fire combat, you're pinned down. In hand-to-hand -hand combat, you are uh, knocked senseless, and you can't do anything for 1d6 rounds. And then from there, you've got light wounds, uh, which you have to make a willpower roll to basically resist the, uh, the pain. And then you have a, uh, a negative ease factor at that point, a minus one to your ease factor. Medium wounds are just more severe, uh, higher level willpower roll and a minus two to your ease factor. Heavy wounds, even worse. Incapacitated, you're out for, uh, 1d6 hours. Killed. You're dead. Killed in action. Schmidt Spirnoff. I think I said that right. Depth of Spies. Those of you who are hardcore fans of the Living Daylights, which, you know, I consider myself to be one, 
Uh, so I should be ashamed of myself there. You'll correct me. I have no doubts about that. And so, you know, there's there's unique things that you can do in combat. Uh, in fire combat, you can do suppressive fire, spray fire, uh, that kind of stuff. Hand-to-hand combat, you can punch or kick. Kick is a negative ease factor uh, to deal more damage. Or you can do specific blows to knock someone out, trip them, uh, get back onto your feet, restrain someone, you know, try to tap them out, something like that. And then in hand-to-hand combat, you have thrown weapons. Uh, basically, the way that melee weapons work, you know, like a knife or brass knuckles or even a sword. There are swords in this book. Because, <laughs> of course, there are. You have to have a sword. Because someone's going to try and play a knight in your spy game. That's just the rules of running a, a, a role-playing game. Someone's always going to try and bend the genre. You know, you say, I want to play D&D, someone's going to bring a superhero to the table. Then you say, we're going to do a superhero game, someone's going to bring a knight in shining armor to the table. It's just the way it works. As a DM, you will not win. But it's not about winning. It's about making sure that everyone has fun in the given circumstances. But yeah, those basically add, uh, you know, one or two levels to your... uh, to your specific, you know, damage that you're dealing. And, you know, as a result of being incapacitated, you can get scars. Uh, Scars are randomly determined based on a D100 roll. And the more scars you get, uh, the more infamous you become. Because those are distinguishing features. Uh, You know, those of you who remember from Russia with Love... uh, you know, Bond was able to be identified by the scar on his back uh, by Tatiana Romanova. You know, she, as they were fooling around, she feels the scar on his back and knows to look for it because she read his file. That's, you know, kind of what we're dealing with here. Uh, but as you take certain levels of wounds, your chances go up. At a medium wound, you start to have a small chance of getting a scar. Heavy, it gets, you know, higher. Incapacitated, you're at a 35% chance. And so, uh, you know, first aid can be administered during combat. Uh, Basically, it reduces a wound level, so it makes combat a little bit easier. And if you're hospitalized, you can reduce a wound level by two, uh, just over a period of days. And for each, uh, each level's reduced, you have to spend three days in the hospital. Which, you know, it's an interesting concept. It's not one that's going to come up or, you know, have a big impact on your game. You're not going to roleplay being in the hospital unless you're doing, like, Thunderball. Which, even then, he wasn't in a hospital. He was in a health clinic. And so, yeah, that's combat. And then the other big thing that we need to mention is chases. Because chases use a super interesting, super unique mechanic in this game. It's the same in Classified. And the way that it goes is basically it's a race to the bottom to how risky a maneuver you're willing to take on. So everyone kind of, you know, figures out, I'm willing to... You know, risk something with an ease factor of four. 
Well, you know what? I'm willing to risk something with an ease factor of two. So I can go all the way down. No, 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 no. One. I can do something with an ease factor of one. And whoever bids the lowest, uh, not only do they win and get to do their maneuvers first, but they've determined the ease factor for every single roll that is then made by both sides. The minimum ease factor that you're able to bid at is called the red line. It's determined by your vehicle. And if you go lower than the red line, you risk a mishap, which involves a mishap roll. Uh, Basically, if you roll uh, above a certain percentage chance, uh, you have something go wrong with your vehicle, and it could be catastrophic and take you out of the chase. You know, basically you do something to uh, foul up the car mechanically, you know, something like that. And then, you know, from there, once that's determined, um, the side which bids lower, you guys get to, you know, declare who goes first. And then from there, the people go first, declare their maneuvers. The maneuvers are resolved, uh, you know, roll for mishaps, do any fire combat, if there's weapons to be fired, you know, you've got machine guns on your DB5. You can fire those. And then the second side, they take their turns, uh, attempts their, attempt their maneuvers, you know, do all that, fire their weapons, and then it starts all over again. That's how uh, combat works. And vehicles take damage in much the same way that people do. Um, they've got a certain number or a certain, you know, like, threshold of damage that they can take. And then there are certain maneuvers that you can take uh, to close the distance between yourself and your uh, pursuant, or to, you know, increase that distance between yourself and your pursuer, depending on what you're trying to do. So there's pursue or flee, which either closes the gap or broadens the gap. There's force, which, you know, makes you, you know, you're, you're able to try to make your opponent make a mistake. Quick turn, you can try to, you know, trick your opponent by, you know, just quickly turning down an alleyway or something like that. Double back is a U-turn. Uh, it's it's a high risk high reward thing where you pass like basically you close the distance between yourself and whoever's pursuing you. But if you are able to you know get past that person without any incident, uh, you kind of wreak some havoc. Excuse me, sorry about that. So yeah, you you wreak some havoc and you know broaden the uh, the range between yourself and the uh, the pursuant. And then you have trick. This is where you do the corkscrew flip uh, with your uh, your AMC uh, your AMC hornet. This is where you know you do something crazy. you spin the helicopter. you do one of those crazy bondian things. You drive the car into the barn and fly out with airplane wings. And it has the lowest ease factor. It's not safe, obviously, you know. 
it's it's not exactly the safest thing to do the corkscrew roll from uh, from Man with the Golden Gun, but you can do it. It's possible. I don't know if I'd give an ease factor bonus to a player for describing a really cool trick, but I might. That seems like something as a GM that I would do. Or maybe I'd make it harder. I don't know. I'd probably make it easier just, you know, for creativity. And then fire combat happens. Mishaps basically will do damage to your vehicle. And then here you've got your your damage chart, which is very similar to the way that damage works for people. Light damage, medium damage, heavy damage, incapacitated, and killed. And the damage that your vehicle takes uh, impacts the speed at which you're going, which impacts... Actually, in this case, it doesn't really impact your uh, ability to go first because it's more about bidding, but still, it will allow your... Uh, your quarry, the people you're chasing to kind of get away from you if your speed gets too low. And of course, you can take damage as a person in the midst of a chase. Say, you know, someone leans out the window of the car and fires their pistol at you. And instead of, you know, firing at your tires, they fire at you and they hit you. At that point, you're taking damage, not the car. And of course, there's tailing, which is like a less aggressive chase. Um, you know, basically, that's that's determined by what kind of vehicle you're in. As the book points out, you can't uh, tail a character in a helicopter if you're on foot. And then here you get into interaction with NPCs. Um, something that's really cool here, you've got this uh, reaction chart which is based on, you know, charisma checks or based on, you know, your your interactions with people. If you get like a, uh, if you fail, then they're opposed to you. If you get a low quality rating, they're antagonistic, neutral, friendly, and enamored. You know, so if, if your pickup lines aren't very good, you're not going to be able to uh, kind of get away with... Uh, you know, dropping those kind of sleazy lines on the Bond girl. And so that's something that I like a lot. Then you have, you know, persuasion, uh, different ease factors, as you can see here, for the different uh, NPCs uh, based on how they view your agent. That uses your uh, charisma skill if you've taken it. And then you have seduction. And this is really interesting, the mechanics behind seduction. It's obviously something that's very important in Bond. Um, and each stage of seduction has its own separate ease factor. It gets harder and harder as you go. It starts with the look, the meet cute, the you know make eye contact with a cute stranger across the bar. Ease factor of 10. Anyone can do it. In real life, that is absolutely not the case but you know ease factor of 10 your secret agents then you have the opening line ease factor of nine again real life no that's going to be lower that's like an ease factor of six in real life but uh you know again secret agent ease factor nine 
witty conversation, a little bit harder, ease factor of eight. You know, got to keep up with the banter. Got to make sure your innuendos are suggestive but not filthy. Beginning intimacies, ease factor of five. Letting a little bit more of the dirt seep, uh, you know, kind of seep into your uh, your double entendres there, your double O entendres. And then you've got when and where. This is the meetup. This is the, you know, I'll see you in my room, write my room number and lipstick on your thigh, like in uh, Majesty's East Factor of Four. That's the lowest one. And so at that point, you know, you're in it. Just don't screw it up. It's a, lo- it's a you know, hard roll, but you gotta do it. And then there are, you know, associated um, modifiers based on the NPC's outlook on you. If an NPC has already resisted your charms, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, it's going to be easier if the we- if the NPC is a weakness for the opposite sex, like James Bond. You know, there's bonuses based on attraction. Uh, you know, if if the NPC is male and the player character is female. Uh, you know, assuming, you know, proclivities are all there, you can you can obviously, you know, put someone there who's, you know, going to be resistant to them just because of, you know, what they're attracted to. In fact, as a DM, I'd encourage that because uh, it makes it harder on your players. Makes them actually use their brains, not just rely on, you know, what's on their sheet. <clears throat> it's a lot harder to uh, seduce someone if your character is a plain appearance, uh, it's easier if they're attractive, especially if they're sensational, which is the highest level of attractiveness in this game. Uh, by the way, Bond is striking. That's his appearance. So handsome, but not sensational. And then, you know, with NBC interactions, you've got interrogation, torture, uh, which this is for GMs. If your player characters are torturing someone, well, you know, you can play kind of fast and loose with the morals in your in your spy game. That's that's valid. In fact, classified actually digs into this a lot more uh, because, you know, with this, this game is specifically tailored to James Bond. And so there's a lot of expectations on what a James Bond type adventure is like. Classified does not have those limitations, so it's a bit broader as far as your interpretation of espionage. So in this case, you can have some kind of moral ambiguity, you know, some some heroes who would torture people. It's, you know, that's fair play in Classified. In James Bond, you know, again, you're James Bond. James Bond doesn't really torture people for the most part. Sometimes he does, only occasionally. When he's really mad. And then you've got gambling. All the gambling kind of boils down to dice rolls. It's cool if you want to do that. It seems like the kind of thing that could like take up an entire session, though. I'm very careful with mini games kind of within my uh, my game systems because there's a temptation for your players to completely get off track, you know, trying to play cards rather than actually doing what you have planned for them. 
So I say, you know, kind of use those mechanics with a, you know, with a grain of salt. I know they need to be there because of James Bond. But if you can avoid it, I'd say try to avoid it. Because chances are you're going to get that one player who wants to spend their entire evening at the Baccarat table. And, you know, that might not go your way if you, you know, had other things planned. And it describes gambling in different uh, different places around the world. <laughs> the continent. I love this. I believe that's how they describe America. Let's see. The continent. Oh, no, that's Europe. Never mind. My bad. But they also describe Monte Carlo, London, Vegas, the Bahamas. They probably, they don't have Macau in here, but I'm sure that's in, uh, you know, thrilling locations. Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, Macau. Then you get into fame and hero points. We're going to scroll through this a little bit. Experience for leveling up. And then you have listed out equipment. Uh, this is kind of cool because you get some nice images here of, you know, like weaponry in, you know, kind of schematic form, which is awesome. There's a lot more of this in the Q manual, which I'll go over here just to show you guys kind of what you have here. Uh, so a Q manual, you know, you have a lot more, you know, like you have the, the 1911, which isn't in the base book, uh, the 38, the, you know, Colt 38. You have a few other guns that are in there, but then you have just like a more expanded roster. And then, you know, aside from guns, you've also got cars, uh, you know, like I said, there are swords here. You've got gadgets. Let's find some gadgets here. Oh, here's some, here's some cars. Aston Martin, obviously. You have car gadgets. You know, we get through all these vehicles. There's a lot of stuff here. Gun ports. Most of these don't have pictures. You know, mirror dart, if you, uh, you know, Kananga. Get me a trace on that pit mobile. <laughs> One of the best lines in Live and Let Die. I love that line. Twin 50 caliber machine guns. Nice picture there. Uh, that is from, I believe that's from Diamonds Are Forever. I think that's the only time where Bond drives a uh, a Mustang. And of course, Golden Gun. And then you've got some devices. You got the uh, the attache case from, uh, from Russia with Love. It's, in fact, they even have a mention of that. Yes, you can get an AR-7. Those of you who are purists, explosive belt, uh, pen pistol. They don't have the uh, they don't have the grappling belt because again, Goldeneye hadn't come out yet. But that's pretty easy to you know put together yourself. Shoe escape kit. They don't have the dagger shoe. Oh no, they do. Never mind. There you go, dagger shoe. Of course, you you need that for uh, for Rosa Kleb. And if you're gonna like mod this for Kingsman, you need the the dagger shoe as well. <clears throat> oh, 
Umbrella air gun. <laughs> Speaking of Kingsman. Umbrella shield. Wouldn't surprise me if Matthew Vaughn ever played this. Red Grant's Garot watch. There's all kinds of cool stuff that you can get in this game. And then, you know, once once you get past equipment and stuff like that, then you get into, you know, here, here's some stats as far as the MI6 personnel. You've got M, Q, Moneypenny, Tanner, Penelope Smallbone. And then you've got here some, some more stats as far as you know, Bond characters. You have Tarot, because they couldn't use Spectre. We'll talk about that in the uh, JBR episode. But Tarot is the Spectre stand-in. Down here, you've got the uh, Carl Scorpios, who is your Blofeld stand-in. He has a doggy. And then you get into some stats for... Uh, you know, allies and enemies of Bond, Karen Bay, Tracy, Draco. Uh, Tracy's weakness should be bullets, not attraction to the member of opposite sex. Just going to twist that knife. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> my friends recently saw on Her Majesty's Secret Service and it kind of tore them apart. So <laughs> just got to remind them of that. Tracy's dead. Quarrel. Of course, Solitaire. Pussy Galore. Your name enemies now. Goldfinger. Jaws. Gotta have Jaws. Red Grant. Kananga. Kronstein, for some reason, is statted out. I don't know. Maybe that has more to do with uh, From Russia With Love, the book. But, you know, Kronstein is not someone you directly run into in the movie. He's kind of there behind the scenes pulling strings. It's his plan. But, you know, as you know, his plan doesn't work out. It's it's an interesting addition. I feel like it's here just for completeness. Then you've got Dr. No. Odd job. Odd job looks like a pilgrim here with that silly hat. Doesn't look like his hat. Stromberg, Scaramanga. You can basically use Stromberg for Blofeld. I'm pretty sure Stromberg was supposed to be Blofeld. Teehee. And then you've got some cities, some locations. And then at the back, you've got an adventure. And some, uh, some stuff for, you know, creating NPCs and stuff like that. And that's pretty much the James Bond role-playing game. Um... <laughs> Spoonie also has a uh, a weakness for bullets. I was not able to see the chat this entire time. It did not show up on my uh my dashboard here. So basically, I've just been uh, you know, not seeing any of the uh text that you guys have put up here. So, you know, Spoonie, handsome but not sensational is a great thing to put on your Tinder profile. I'm glad you're here. And then, yes, yes, we do have gadgets and gizmos aplenty, uh, you know, thingamabobs that have 20. But we want more. That's why we have the Q Branch Manual. So, all in all, yes, rude. 
Obviously. Obviously, I was I was being very rude. Extremely. Almost as rude as reminding you that Tracy is dead. But anyway, focusing specifically on classified here just for the last few minutes. Um, you know, this was released in 2014. There's a lot of updates that were made to this book. But for all intents and purposes, this is a retro clone of the James Bond RPG by Expeditious Retreat Press. It's a very good retro clone. I like it a lot. And I'm glad that, you know, a physical book exists that you can use to play the James Bond role-playing game. Because honestly, it's a good game. It's a lot of fun. Having played it once, it it really is a decent game. Uh, There are a few additions. One thing that I would like to point out that I will criticize the James Bond book for, the tables that you need are together. Take note of this, Victory Games. The tables that your players need are on the same page. That is good RPG design. All your tables need to be together. For quick reference. But, you know, in this game, you've also got some decent art here. Uh, It looks a lot like Michael Janine or Mikhail Hanin, however you pronounce his name, the guy who did the Grayson art. I know it's not him, but it looks a lot like his style. I'll hold that up here. Those of you who are comic book fans know what I'm talking about. And, of course, you've got the, uh, the silhouettes of your various Bonds on the front cover here. But yeah, like I said, this gives you an additional uh, ability that you can pick yourself. And um, it really streamlines the character creation process, all of it's together. You know, it's not broken up in the ways that uh, the, the James Bond RPG is. And then you get into combat and stuff like that. Everything's a lot cleaner, a lot more streamlined. Um, basically, if you want to play the James Bond RPG, get classified. It's nice to have, you know, physical copies of these old books. If you're a huge James Bond fan, they're not that expensive. You can get a, uh, you know, you can get a boxed copy of the additional, or sorry, the original box set on eBay for, you know, like $50, $60. Really not that bad in the grand scheme of things. You can get a loose book for, you know, 40 So if you want that stuff, it's out there. But, you know, for a cleaner experience, something that's a little bit more friendly to modern gaming eyes, classified is where it's at. Um, in the future, when I run this, I'm going to be running from classified. Just, you know, it's a physical book. I like physical books better than PDFs. And, you know, it's legal to get this. You can, you can get this and support the creators. Uh, whereas if you, you know, get the PDFs online of the James Bond RPG, no one owns that license anymore. So you're not supporting anyone. And if you're buying the physical books, again, you're only supporting the guy who's selling it this way. You can support some RPG creators, put some money in some people's pockets. And it's a good game. And it details how you, you know, break this up and and use it for, you know, different levels of play. Uh, For a super realistic game or a super crazy out there, you know, kind of Kingsman style game. It's got it all. And they have put out adventures for it as well. So, 
if you're the kind of guy who likes, uh, you know, modules, they have classified modules. The only thing it doesn't have is the James Bond copyright, which, again, Bond fans, you guys can do those conversions yourself. I've done it myself. It's not difficult. So if you're going to run it, classified. If you're going to run a spy game in general, though, I am, of course, going to make the recommendation that you do it with Savage Worlds. Because, you know, where the James Bond RPG walks, Savage Worlds runs. Uh, Savage Worlds is a great system. The cards, you know, kind of give you that poker table feel. So if you already have those books, um, as good as Classified is... Just use Savage Worlds. You can play a perfectly good spy game with Savage Worlds. And, you know, I'm going to just keep proselytizing that game system because those people have been really good to me and I love the system. So, thank you for tuning into my better, improved stream on the James Bond RPG. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, just so you know what's going on next week, I am bringing on Banana Chan to talk about a game that is going to go up on Kickstarter later in July. Let me go ahead and pull up the information on that game. <clears throat> it is called uh, Jiangxi Blood in the Banquet Hall. It is an RPG focused on uh, Chinatown in New York in the 1920s. Uh, you know, it's it's really an interesting sounding game a cool setting and i'm excited to hear what you know banana and her uh her you know developing partner have to say about this game um <clears throat> because it just seems cool and i like new games so we'll have a new game to discuss with you guys next week uh this saturday i'm gonna be pulling together an independence day special on danishes and dragons I'm probably going to be talking about, you know, cookout food rather than breakfast food because it's 4th of July. And I'm also toying around with the idea of possibly statting out the Founding Fathers. I think that would be interesting to do. Cool discussion if we've got some people on to, you know, talk about what classes in uh, the traditional D&D &D sense we think the, uh, the Founding Fathers would be. Beast is not a class, Elfie. Beast Master is a class, but Beast is not a class. Besides, Hamilton's not a ranger. And Washington's a Battlemaster fighter. And yes, we'll be having barbecue for breakfast. Spoonie, I've done that before. Uh, you know, when you have leftover pulled pork, one of the best things you can do with it is turn it into an omelet. So I have, in fact, done that before. But yes, we'll be talking about, you know, our favorite cookout foods, uh, you know, just having a, a grand old time in, in Independence Day fashion. I can't wait to, uh, to, you know, see you guys then. So remember, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you guys rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.
Hey everyone, Ryan Howard here. Just wanting to remind you all that now, instead of just listening to the podcast every Saturday morning, you can join us live on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on Twitch to watch and listen to my interviews each week. I'll also be doing a Saturday morning show called Danishes and Dragons, where I discuss both D&D campaigns and my favorite breakfast foods and coffees. I look forward to seeing each and every one of you, and you can find links to Twitch and YouTube in the show notes page. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and thank you very much for listening.